0: Welcome to Get In The Herd, a podcast about addiction and recovery brought to you by the McShin Foundation. If you or a loved one are looking for real discussions about addiction, recovery, stigma, advocacy, and most importantly, hope, then stick around. Thanks for joining us. Now sit back and get ready for another great episode of Get In The Herd. Good evening ladies and gentlemen and welcome to Get in the Herd After Hours. After Hours. I'm your host Alex Bond. Um I am a staff member here at the McShin Foundation reporting live from my office. Uh more importantly, I am a person in recovery from a substance use disorder, which means that for the last uh, over 15 months I have not found the need to put any mood or mind altering substances in my body. And, um, you know, found a footing in this uh, new community that has welcomed me so graciously. I'm here with my two lovely guests, Jesse and Angela. How are you all doing today? Doing good.
1: We're doing well. Thanks for having us.
0: Awesome. Very happy to have you. So, Jesse, start off. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself to everyone who might not know you?
2: (laughs) Well, according to you, you can just Google me and that'll take care of everything Straight up. Yeah, y'all do the work. (laughs) uh, My name is Jesse Heffernan. I'm a person in long term substance use and mental health recovery. I just celebrated 20 years uh, on the 21st of January. Um, So so half my life uh, in recovery so far, and it's certainly caused, you know, I mean, there's constant evaluation and constant looking at like, well, what, is, what does recovery mean? Because I mean, by, by all definitions, like it's certainly not about substances anymore. Right. So so it's about maintenance. It's about looking at other deeper things. It's about looking at the stuff between the lines. And so I'm grateful to be able to be in a space to do that. Um, I'm a recovery coach professional with CCAR. I co-own a business called Helios Recovery Services, where we train recovery coaches and provide Technical assistance and consulting to states and agencies, and really just focus in on building that what that like that recovery capa- recovery capital and recovery capacity within organizations, and make sure that we're and 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 just to start it off, like it's not about us just being at the table; it's about us claiming that we actually have our own table, and and that's the way change happens. So,
0: yeah, that's what we talk about on here all the time. Is is is. You know, how do we get a seat at the table when actually it's kind of about building our own table? Um, So um, I'm really interested to um, pick your brain a little bit, Jesse. I'm very happy to have you on. Um, Angela, why don't you introduce yourself? Those who might not know you.
1: Hi. So I'm Angela Mallet, and I'm a person in long-term recovery from substance use disorder, and I have not used any mind-altering substances or alcohol since February of 2016. So in just uh, a few days, we'll we're coming up on five years. So that's an exciting milestone um so professionally i i am the director of outreach for an organization called end it for good and we work on drug policy reform and educating people and communicating the harms of the war on drugs and then invitationally inviting people even people we know who fundamentally can't get on board with us and, and and zoom out and look at these ideas we invite them to the table because that's the only way change is going to happen is if if we start these conversations in places where they don't want to have them so in a place like mississippi to be talk of uh, talking about you know harm reduction and and decriminalization and and a legalized and regulated substance market what would that look like is is can be challenging, (laughs) but if we can do it here, then I feel like it can be done uh, across the board.
0: Awesome, so Mississippi and Wisconsin in the house. Um, Very excited to talk about harm reduction with you. So I I wanna jump in with like, I don't know, some softballs. There's some language that um, some of our viewers might not know or understand i personally know what recovery capital is but i'd like jesse to explain what he means by helping people kind of assess uh recovery capital and and gain recovery capital can you actually explain that to our audience what that means
2: sure there's so there's two routes one is like the capital of recovery itself and i think mcshin tries to pretend it's the capital of recovery sometimes
0: I, I am no spokesman, as much as this podcast may may perceive that. Just like I'm
2: hoping John's watching, um, but no, Recovery Capital. You got think about it like the things that we have available to us um, that help us initiate or sustain a recovery pathway. And I and I think the important part too is like when we talk about initiating or sustaining a recovery pathway, that we have this fundamental idea that it's not about me having a predetermined outcome of what recovery looks like for you and and we use a lot of terms like uh abstinence based we use moderation based medication based recovery but to me it all falls under this umbrella of like you know recovery affirming healthcare, right and and so to help a person develop the capital in their life so that they can slowly see like here's the access to resources that i have and there's two really important elements to this one is like oftentimes there are more there's more capital available to us than what we might realize or understand, and we don't know how to navigate those things. The other part is that there's very real inequ- uh, equity barriers to those resources for individuals. Um, and, and so like I might be able to say as a, as a white cisgender person, like I can access all this stuff here in Wisconsin where there's folks that aren't necessarily have the same level of privilege to access the same capital that I have. So it really varies depending upon who you are and where you are, uh, when it comes to having those kind of resources available to you. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I I think the, the problem that people have is don't know maybe even the value of these resources that we have, or, you know, for example, like a like a social community is such a huge resource that we either take for granted, or don't realize how important it is to have it when we don't have it. Uh, for example, that was something that I was missing upon, for, like, first getting into recovery. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I think that's really cool. And and I hope this is just continuously educational. Um, for example, Angela, um, I, I know that your experience with the harm reduction side of things. And um, I, I, I think you were talking about those kind of difficult conversations that might arise. But I think that harm reduction sites are where that is, like... I don't know, a a catalyst for those conversations, where those are, are really easily happening. Can you kind of explain why that is or, or the importance of that uh, conversation happening there on those harm reduction sites?
1: Yeah, I hope you guys don't mind. It's almost bedtime. so we, someone, love
0: a, we love another guest.
1: <laughs> someone's needing a little snuggle. Uh, so, you know, and I am sure I will, I am positive that, in many places across the country, harm reduction programming has become the norm, right? And, and our state agencies are allocating dollars toward it. And, and they are, are listening to the research that shows that people that engage in harm reduction programs are more likely to access treatment and on a continuum will eventually, you know, engage in long-term sustained recovery. Uh, however, in the deep South, that's not the case right our in Mississippi, the barriers that I've ran into it is it's actually illegal for me to open a harm reduction facility here mm-hmm. and and so we can't do syringe uh, exchange programs, we can't do testing supplies, we can't do clean supply distribution uh, because it is all considered paraphernalia and its part of our our narcotics act of nineteen seventy two that has not been re- repealed so we've come in with bills numerous ones over the past four years to try to have that removed and and they are killed each time uh so so what that says to us is that we need to back up obviously the right people and enough people are not understanding what the problem is right they're not understanding how how drug use is exacerbated by punitive measures. And so we, at End It For Good, we have, have tried to zoom all the way out and bringing very basic education and, and messaging to the citizens across the state and across the Southeast that, that the war on drugs is, is essentially making this problem worse. It is not, we're not seeing the outcomes that we intended to have.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's definitely been a, um, a step backward, and it's just been hard to kind of over overcome. So at least, just as a quick anecdote, I had um, someone here today who recently celebrated like a year clean, and they get the Pivotrol shot, which I, I would consider. Uh, you know, it's not a needle exchange, but it's I consider it harm reduction and, and, and some sort of factor, and uh, said that the, the ladies there were like, let me see the medallion like because they've been so supportive and ingrained into that person's recovery process. Um, It's so much more symbiotic. It's, it's people who aren't, you know, just a face and a name um, coming in to get a shot. It's, it's people who create these relationships, get educated on recovery. And a lot of times then they get into recovery or it's the other way around. So I think they are definitely vital. Um, Jesse, are they, you know, are they a little more fluent in Wisconsin or kind of like maybe maybe what's your take on on harm reduction in general? I know that we all kind of root for it and the blockades to it, but how do we get over them?
2: Yeah, so it's, what's interesting in Wisconsin is so that we've had uh, we had a program called AIDS Resource Center Wisconsin, and for a long time that, pro- that provided the, uh, the primary funding for needle and syringe exchange to their programs in addition to accessing uh, medication um, as well as other programs. And so we've had that for co- quite a long time, even before I was familiar with the term harm reduction. Back in like 2009 and 2010, this program was providing that. And they've just continued to expand it throughout that time period. Um, So I I think there's definitely a lot of options for folks here in Wisconsin. But there's also like, again, like we talk about those systemic barriers and we talk about there were there were some folks that that kind of lobbed the idea out there of an overdose prevention site or a safe injection site, if you will. Right. And and of course, you know, folks come marching in and saying like that'll never happen here. But we have more bars per capita in the state of Wisconsin, then we have like churches and grocery stores, right? And those are pretty much just unsupervised locations where people are drinking themselves. And and then, you know, you look at the fallout from that, right? And, and alcohol kills more people every year than, you know, opioids and, and fentanyl and things like that, right? And so it's a much greater problem. So I, I like what Angelo is talking about, like, really zooming out to like, sometimes like this 101, 5000 foot level of like, this is good, this is bad, you're not, getting the return on investment that you wanted to. But again, gratefully we have some programs and we've had some pretty progressive measures that have allowed for, you know, needle exchange and continue to have that kind of education. And of course, access to naloxone Narcan, and things like that too. hmm.
0: Yeah, it's really important. And uh, Angela, does, does harm reduction also include that uh, education piece, especially in like a public education sort of system? Or is it kind of just like flyers get handed out? Uh, I- I'm kind of curious about what the... Out the other part of harm reduction is that we don't always associate with. Um, because, you know, my brain immediately says needle exchange, uh, when, when, when I hear harm reduction, but I think it's a lot more than that. And I was wondering if it is to what aspect, at least um, from from your stance. In-
1: yeah. So, so to me, I would define harm reduction as anything that reduces the harms that come along with substance use, right? So, uh, a, a simple form is is medication assisted treatment, right? So that's that's harm reduction. Narcan distribution and access to nal- naloxone is also harm reduction. Um, but there is a public education piece to it. I actually put together this presentation. Uh, A couple of months ago and went to the University of Mississippi Medical Center. So this is the the medical school in our state and presented to to doctors and defined to them what harm reduction is. And and in my presentation, I, I pulled all these old photographs and did a historical timeline of the development of the automobile. And I don't remember, don't quote me on these dates, but somewhere around the late 19th century, uh, around 1880s, the first automobile was sold and that had the man's name in there, it was sold to him and he lived in New York. And then in 1891, the first fatality happened from automobiles because now everyone's driving and there's no road signs and there's no stop signs and there's no red lights. And so we have our first fatality recorded. Right. And so over the course of the next 10 to 15 years, uh, traffic signs are invented and then stoplights are invented. And what are they? They're harm reduction. They're reducing the harms from an inherently dangerous activity. And, and so I take them through that whole process until we, we get into the 1980s and, and seat, belts, seat belts now re, are, are law. Every vehicle must have them. All right. And so, again, we are reducing the harms of an inherently dangerous activity uh, that people are going to engage in. And so trying to, like, take it out of the context of substance use because it's so stigmatized and give it back to them uh, seems seems like it, it'll say, "Ah, oh, OK, well, I can go on board with that. Uh, you know, and, and then we filter it into. So now what does that look like? with a, a population that, that are using substances. Mm-hmm.
0: No, I, I I agree with Mike. It's a great analogy. And, and I agree with everything you said. And, you know, one of the things that comes with that is if you're so is, is even like the hypocrites who would say, if you're so worried about, you know, driving a car, what happens when you drive a car, then maybe don't drive a car. And I think like a seatbelt is our Narcan. I mean, it's just like, like, I love analogies. So it like really works out. Um, what Jesse, do you have anything specifically to the, to, to the, you know, maybe Narcan haters or the, or, or the ones that think, you know, if I don't want to get in a car accident, then maybe I shouldn't drive a car, maybe walk. Um, that's kind of my metaphor for, you know, if you're worried about an overdose, then don't use uh, type of scenario. Um, I don't know any, anything to add there.
2: I I think Angela did such an amazing job with the analogy and and probably going to use that. And and I think that's really great. I I don't know, like, I I get people will look for any reason to have a complaint about something. People will look for a reason to justify their, their angle on something. And, and, you know, you spend any time in the Facebook comments on an article around substance use and, and you see where people are at with it. So it just speaks to the need for ongoing education and, and not just education, like, but just like empathy and compassion. Like, where has that gone, right? Like, um, and and we see the same discussions politically and around masks and around all these other things too. And and so I'm just, you know, I, I think I, I applaud anyone that goes in and wants to talk to the people, like you said, that are a little bit more resistant. And and I've just learned through the years, personally, like I spent a lot of years knocking down doors. And being like, you need to hear this. You need to understand this. And and there was definite change made. And I think that's part of what is really great about the recovery advocacy movement is like leaders are always coming in, learning how to knock down doors with amazing analogies. And then everybody finds their place for it, Um, you know, with with Narcan haters, um, you know, it's it's. it's really about like, do I want to spend my time with that person on Facebook or in the street talking about it? And, and what real influence does that person have? Right. Like Angela said, regardless of, of how many people thought seatbelts were going to be against their rights, we have seatbelts, right. Regardless of all these safety measures we currently have, like, you know, our phones don't blow up anymore. They recall the phones that blow up, right. You don't want a phone that blows up. Don't buy a phone. Um, Mm-hmm. Science and and reason, I think, will win out eventually. It's just it, it's unfortunate that it usually wins out when it costs more money to change it than it does to keep it the same.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no that that that's absolutely true. Especially when things start to develop and become the new norm, that that's just the way it is. You're going to get left behind or in the curb, and then you're on the wrong side of history. I think that our, our current you know atmosphere. Has created a lot of division um i am very uh well i don't want to hesitant with media in general um, ironically speaking on a podcast um, i think media can be manipulated very easily and it creates a lot of divisiveness angela do you think it's important that we as a recovery community all agree on the same stuff and have a clear and concise message? Or is it just going to be natural that we're not all going to agree on everything. So we should kind of like stick with our guns on certain things.
1: Stella says we must all agree on things. (laughs) We
0: must all agree on
1: things. You heard it from the mouth of babes. Uh, You know, so I, I respect diversity I want to, I never want to feel or (laughs) go down the path where I feel like I'm the smartest person in the room. Uh, And then that was taught to me very early in my recovery. I I got sober from forced abstinence in a 12 step program, uh, forced abstinence by drug court. And and I made, it was a, a huge, huge leap for me to get to where I am today, where I see that that almost every harm that our society faces is from the war on drugs and from criminalizing substance use. Uh, and I, I actually believe that the way that we are the the way that we're going to decrease the most harms would be to have a legal, a legalized and regulated market where anyone who chooses or needs to engage in substance use does so under the care of a doctor, not under the care of a drug dealer. Right. And so that's a whole nother conversation as for what that can look like. But to answer your question, uh, we have to hold space for everyone's opinions and and you need to like the way i try to deal with people who i know don't agree with me or are opposed and who are opposed to our work um is that i i practice a harm reduction principle with them i i meet them where they are and i do not force my beliefs on them I am respectful. I'm always kind. I'm always engaging and I hold space and I try to understand like what are their roadblocks? So what I, I, I was on a, uh, a training. It's been a couple of months ago with the people from around the country and our founder, Christina Dent did a, we did a book discussion on the book, Chasing the Scream. Mm -hmm. And, One guy, I cannot remember his name, I think it might have been Michael Crouch and I think Mike Todd knows him. He said that the visceral response that you get from people, especially people in recovery, when you talk about decriminalizing or legalizing substances, so that's a trauma response for them. And I was like, oh, oh, it is because these substances cause massive amounts of pain in their past and so now here we come along talking about decriminalizing like that's super scary to them just even that thought can can send send them you know could derail their recovery for some people and so i have to be considerate of that yeah i'm also i also try to be really considerate of people who have their whole careers have been spent enforcing our current laws right so not every law enforcement officer is, is a terrible person not every da or prosecutor is the devil or judge that sentences people to prison they're not all bad right i i believe if you dig deep down they all want to do good and they they believe that they're helping but the laws that they have to enforce are harmful they're not harmful well and so what does that look like when you come in a room and you and you say we need to decriminalize and we need to get rid of all of these punitive responses to people who use drugs and and so that means their whole life's work could have been wrong and and you have to be you have to be careful treading in those waters and you have to be respectful and kind and and Consider how they might feel. So that's how we try to approach all of our public facing work, whether it's memes we post on Facebook or words we say in interviews or emails that we send to legislators. Yeah, we.
0: Sorry,
1: I think I went off a little bit too far.
0: On that. <laughs> oh, please, please. It, it's great, it's completely natural. Um, I, I think what you're saying is super valid. It's definitely something that would take a lot of brevity. Um, I'm, I, I got done with a, a unit of justice theory class, and the way you're talking is almost exactly on that level, where it's very anti-rules, going toward values. It's very like less hierarchical, more like community. I mean, it's definitely moving from a punitive system to a unitive system. And even the way you say holding space for people, I can tell that you've like done your research and you've you've definitely like, I don't know, been involved in a very communal setting because that's what the thing is, is a lot of people want to solve problems instead of a hold space for people to solve their own problems, just like on a conflict resolution tip. But at the exact same time, um, the word decriminalization just as a straight up semantic me makes me think this isn't a crime anymore. You know what I'm saying? So it's like defelonization, um, uh, it just like affects people in a different way because of of that trauma that you're talking about. I think that was really, really well said. Um, I don't want to go too deep down the rabbit hole, but I think what you're talking about is is essentially the Portugal model. in the u s, Jesse is that like a good idea
2: i think we just saw that happen in oregon right yes absolutely happy happy decriminalization day i think i think the folks at the club there right. yeah it's i think the i think it was i think i saw a brent cano post it was today That's right. and i think they're gonna make like holiday cards for every year so you can like send out holiday cards at least that would be great if it was right so just again like to follow up i mean angela just said it so concisely right like it's, it's hard to talk about it like, you know, seeing the forest from the trees kind of a thing, right? Like we're in the system that's not working. So it's hard to see and it's hard to validate other systems that could work and possibly work when your entire life is surrounded by this. And and to kind of back up what she said, like, you know, substance use disorder and mental health, it's the, the way that it's been woven into the criminal justice system as being like the only medical issues that you try to punish people out of with prison time right like you know oh you've had like remission like your cancer's come back maybe some time in jail will help you be better at not having cancer right like it just sounds absurd and insane and and so i think like you know trying to pose it to people like that but i but when we talk about decriminalization and and then you know again for me i have the discussions well tell me then why you're for the current legalization of Mm -hmm. alcohol and tobacco tell me tell me about that and tell me the uh, tell me the amount of money that we spend on billions and millions of dollars we spend on people that are hurt by that right and and so how is it any different than that you know um, we just give people more access to it and so i think again like you said angela like finding those touch points where like help them relate and identify with current world standings and how this could work the same way with it and then working through that educational component and then you know again at the end of the day like people are going to find and seek these substances no matter what. And I, and I think that's part of the conversation, but then going further down the stream and like, well, why are people seeking the substances? And then, so what are we doing about prevention efforts that include talking about trauma and include addressing the the, the systems that allow for trauma to happen in and of the first place so that they, then they end up seeing substances as a way of of coping with those things. Right? So I think there's larger systematic conversations that, that need to happen with these things, and the decriminalization, legalization of substances is just like, you know what? In, in a couple of years, pot's going to be legal across the country, right? Just, you know, get ready, right? Yep. Buy some stock, whatever. Um, that seems to be the thing kids that are doing these days. The thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's going it's to happen, right? Like, you know, and, and for my own personal story, like when we talk about like, well, the long term effects, right? I had a harder time detoxing from the antidepressant meds I was given during recovery than I did, you know, cold detoxing off of crack in jail, right? Like that was, I mean, I slept a lot, but you know, so, so again, like really trying to bring some reality to these situations. And, and Johan Hari's second book after chasing the scream is called Lost Connections. And he talks about how the pharmaceutical industry skews test results so that certain meds will be passed and that more people will take them, right? And so it, it, then it blows the whole lid off of that thing, right? You know, of course, 47% people got better. You only had two people in the study, right? So <laughs> it, it, it really looks at, again, like what are the meds that they're making? What are the meds that we're fighting against? Why are we fighting against them? Are there skewed perspectives? There's a ton of skewed data and, it, and it's, a, it's a big uphill climb, but I think it's worthwhile.
0: So, so, how do you do that, Angela? Is that like a step-by-step process? Does it start with a a grassroots thing, or do you do you go big and then work smaller? Do you go the other way around? I mean, you know, different strategies, but I, I think um, I, I so don't know. I think I am
1: by no means the expert. Still, is the expert around here? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think the. That all meaningful change has happened began at a grassroots level, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, you know, I I have a feeling that you could trace back some of our most monumental social advances, and and there will be the people that that Google tells you get take credit for it, or, or like the president who signs it into law, but if you follow that movement back, you're going to find. A group of normal, everyday citizens like Jesse and you and Randy and Mike Todd. And and those people are that were the driving force to gain this momentum. Um, So, yes, it always starts grassroots. And and then later on down the road, someone else will take credit for it. And that's fine. We don't care. We just want change to happen. (laughs) Um, no,
0: that's a great attitude mm-hmm. I, don't, I yeah, didn't mean, I mean to cut you off or anything
1: No, yeah, I, I was just going to To, to kind of Go dive into You know, a friend of mine When I came back from Mobilize Recovery uh, Christina, the founder of End It For Good uh, Who's a, a dear friend of mine and, and now we work together We had lots of conversations about the conversations we had at Mobilize Recovery and and some of the challenges that were that were put uh, before us when we were in Vegas in 2019 and and so from from us talking through it we we decided you know we don't want to preach to the choir because whether or not you know you're in recovery from this and you did it abstinence based or you did it non-abstinence, but whatever um, we I feel that we're all a collective and what we need to be doing instead of talking to each other, we need to be outward facing, talking to the people who, who, uh, who view themselves as different from us or, or view themselves as removed from the conversation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, i i spent a lot of time talking to soccer moms who who in their you know in their daily lives don't have a, a dog in this hunt you know and have never even considered why our drug laws are harmful, and they, they feel very removed from the issue. And it's like, and then once you explain it to them, they're full of empathy and they're full of compassion. I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense. And no, if that happens to my kid, I don't want him to go to prison. So of course we need to decriminalize this stuff, you know? And then we spend a lot of times talking to, a lot of time talking to, teachers and we call chamber of commerces and we talk to the business community and, and yes, we do talk to legislators and, mm-hmm. and police chiefs and, and all of those different kind of people who, uh, who, if you don't go in like, directly engage them then they get to remain on the outside of the conversation so that would be my challenge uh, to anyone who's listening and want to do something is like go have conversations with people who are not part of the pack right Mm -hmm. go talk to people who who are
0: that aren't aren't part of the herd
1: yeah they are part of the herd thank you
2: yeah Yeah.
0: they should get in it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but i th- I think that actually is like really good advice uh meet me you and jesse can sit around talking about all the things that we all agree on and know but i don't i don't know i don't know how productive that is all the time which is why i, I like you know i like having people i don't see all the time and 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 the conversation in general you know what i'm saying like and asking I don't know, somewhat divisive questions if I can, or like as a devil's advocate and and just to try to evoke a conversation. Um, Jesse, you've, you've had your hands in a lot of like pies to my understanding throughout, throughout your recovery journey. Um, You've kind of been everywhere doing everything. Can you like explain, um, I don't know, some of the things that you've been most passionate about and some of the, you know, better successes or, or, or achievements that have made you especially proud um, as one of these people in the grassroots movement?
2: Like one, I love that, that same, what is it? They didn't have a dog in this hunt. <laughs> that's, that's great. I'm like,
1: that like my grandpa just snuck out. <laughs> that was
2: oh, good stuff. Yeah. Cause I'm like, what's the Wisconsin equivalent to that? I don't know. I don't have a cheese in this beer, something like that. Um, so, but, but, but here, I, I guess I want to kind of talk a little bit about um, the, the change piece too, because so, Please. so previous to starting up a small business, Helios recovery. And, and, and so I worked for uh, what, a place called harmony cafe. So it was a program. So our goodwill industries, all goodwills get assigned a certain area within a state or a jurisdiction. And our goodwill covers about 36 counties about the, across the, the middle of Wisconsin. And um, they started up this program called Harmony Cafe in 2006. And it basically was a community hub for live music, for support groups, for diversity conversations. Like it was just, it was where it, it was at. And then eventually um, there, there was an LGBT youth support group called the partnership that moved into it as well. And in 2006 and seven, when I joined AmeriCorps, which was probably the best year of my professional life, being a part of runaway outreach services for AmeriCorps, um, you know, I got, I was a co-facilitator that eventually took over the LGBT youth programs for Northeast Wisconsin and, and, and worked with a lot of coalitions and groups and what I saw, especially from like 2009 to 2013, the amount of progress that happened in our state. And what was interesting is like they started shifting the conversation like, yeah, we knew youth were LGBTQ youth were two, 300 times more likely, you know, suicide attempts, um, mental health issues, suicide, pregnancy, right? And we, we had those stats and we knew it was painful. But then, it, what came along was really fascinating. Is they said, you know what, adult LGBTQ people also constitute for about 80 million dollars in un, you know, tapped revenue in the state of Wisconsin. And then all of a sudden, all the chambers' ears perked up. They're like, there's wow. this group of people, and no one's advertising to them. And then, it, and so I, I love watching innovative models. I love watching. Um, how buzzwords change. I love watching how, how trends come and go. And so it, it got me thinking like, well, what about the, the unprecedented amount of money of people? Because I, I, I make up that people in recovery are, are extremely loyal to brands that are loyal to them, right? That's why we get all the things that we get. Imagine if not only was the recovery community like this constituency um, that, that we could sway politically, but also like it was one that was marketed to, right? Then you would start to see how things change. If you went and said, like, you know, if you see X amount of people into the recovery community, and if they stay in recovery, whatever that pathway is for six months, they they need to spend their money on stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's, and it's gonna be more than energy drinks and cigarettes. They want to spend it on things. So so I think one of the most successful things I saw was, and it had a small party and like one, the city of Appleton became the place that uh, first offered domestic partner benefits at a, at a city level. and And again, that didn't impact the youth I was working with on a weekly basis, because we talked a lot about LGBTQ specific history and safer sex education, but the indirect impact of a city saying like, we're safe now. Right. Like it just relieved what we would call like the toxic stress that they experience on a regular basis. And They're like, now they view Appleton as a safe city. And then you started seeing businesses putting rainbows on the outside of everything. Right. And so you cool. saw the sway happen. Now, granted, this mo- this, this uh, movement's been happening since the 60s with Stonewall, where women of color like started this whole thing. Right. And, and it's been built on their shoulders and and then again when it started impacting and then it swayed into well now there's money opportunities and unfortunately i think a lot of it comes back to that so I've i've had the the chance to be a part of a couple cool things help you know with some legislation introduction but but really my passion like i got to train recovery coaches last week you know and they're going to go impact hundreds of people and, and if i can go in there and talk about being compassionate meet people where they're at talk about harm reduction talk about like you need to get ahead of the curve on all this stuff and really just try to somewhat soapbox an education to them um that that just means a ton i I love seeing that work and i love seeing people go through that process and go out there and make something out of their lives and their recovery meet people where they're at
0: no i i I absolutely agree i I bet you're you're a much more experienced and better trainer than i am but i i got to do the exact same thing last week to some people that came down from connecticut like all the way from and and did the exact same thing training recovery coaches so So, like it's super cool one that we can have a conversation like this virginia wisconsin mm -hmm. and mississippi this in-depth and cogent but the fact that we can also be doing similar almost identical things for the recovery community in our own little way in different areas and then it all just creates this big you know for lack of a better term like melting pot of yeah. you know success I, I just think it's like really beautiful so I, I just i'm getting so much education throughout this whole thing i'm loving it um and i ask, can I ask yeah, angela yeah,
2: question please yeah. please um, this is dialogue you like i uh, so the the recovery coaching harm reduction pathway mm-hmm. have you seen done that i'm interested to hear your thoughts on it
1: i have not done it so i have my in mississippi it is a uh, peer support specialist certified peer support specialist through the department of mental health and i am a trainer for them uh, we had our last training in december so uh, my i consider one of my biggest victories of 2020 was uh, the director of the alcohol and drug services uh, asked me to be a trainer for the recovery focused peer support training and and I tweaked the curriculum some and he let me insert Johan Hari's TED Talk into nice. the training. So it's like on day one, they're getting introduced to to bigger causes of addiction rather than than what they might have just been fed in treatment. Um, so No, I have not done the harm reduction recovery coach training. I'd love to. Does Helios do that?
2: Um, I've been talking with Jim Wolfing, who was one of the creators of the curriculum and and looking to hopefully get in on one of the trainings soon. Um, I, I, again, like I just, I I feel like there's just so much innovation opportunity in all these areas. And again, to to really treat people like in in this pathway and, and to be able to get those things out there. So if if I'm training ever, I'll let you know. But if I hear of a training, I'll definitely both know as well.
0: Yes, please do. I'd love to join. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I guess as as a larger question, how do you guys get access to these trainings, or how can you recommend people watching this find these resources to to trainings? Because you know, we can sit here and try to like educate as much as possible in a in a fun dialogue like this. But I think uh, anyone else like me. I need to sit down and focus on like a training. If I want to like maybe synthesize the information that can make it applicable. Do do y'all have any recommendations to those watching and how to like find any of these traits? Like, I know that's kind of a huge question, but like, how, how do you find some of this stuff? Jesse, you look like you got a smart (laughs) bond.
1: Jesse and, Randy are go to when I'm trying to, to see what the new trainings on the horizon horizons are. Um, so I think I'll let him answer to trainings and then, but then I'll, I'll give you guys some input on, on just virtual education events that are not
0: training. Specific. Yeah. Yeah. Because from my experience, it feels like it's just like networking, like knowing the right person doing a training.
2: Yeah. Well, and it's really important to like, and so, you know, once upon a time early in recovery, I took a career development and analysis class and they do like Myers-Briggs professional astrology stuff. And, and like, you kind of find out like you should be this or that kind of a thing. And I feel like the amount of people when I was in treatment that wanted to go out and be substance use counselors really wanted to see like their experience as sponsors just being paid for it. Right. And, and so like, if you, if you're considering becoming a recovery coach or a peer, like there's a lot of different kind of things you got to consider right one you got to think like well is this a certification i want so i can be billable in my state is it that i want to go and pursue a curriculum that really speaks to me and then i want to get that certification from them so that i'm employable in different places or maybe for them right and then there's like national and international certifications that you can carry with you so the wisconsin state certification uh peer specialist certification is right here but it doesn't travel anywhere else right whereas other states recognize each other's trainings. The CCAR model, which I'll plug here. Uh, So um, Randy Anderson and I will be offering the Recovery Coach Training Academy um, in in April. uh, I believe, I know he's watching the 19th through the 24th. Um, and we do four days of the RCA, but we also do two days of ethics, which we think is really important for recovery coaches to understand this lane and role. And and I'm not like, this is just the pathway that, that spoke to me. I took the training back in 2014. And I, you know, this was when I was still with goodwill because I, I had kind of my foot in two worlds. And so I was seeing like in the 12-step community, like people kind of talking about and not understanding how to navigate services and access things, right? And then at Harmony Cafe, like, I knew of hundreds of nonprofits and I could just access them like this is how you do that right so I pitched a program to do uh, recovery case management and then it, it ended up becoming that they paid for me to go get trained as a coach and I've been training ever since I again like this is just the model that I think works really well and I think um, gels into recovery community organizations really well um, there are other models that that gel better into like county service models or medical based models and and again it's just about doing your research and finding out what does it mean to you and, and how do you want to use it in your career um either to be a paid person or just to have the letters after your last name mm-hmm.
0: yeah i i know at least like in Virginia, we have like a, the certified peer recovery specialist It's kind of like, is like our certification or whatever. But what exactly that means and what they do as paid employees is like, it's kind of here and there, you know what I'm saying? Like, ideally, it would be... um I think there should be CP. It, they just have different jobs at different things. It's kind of not like a one size fits all. You know what I'm saying? When when I hear CPRS, I imagine someone who should be at least in a hospital there when someone just comes back from like a OD or something like that. Like that's what I envision should be the role. And as um, someone in this community, there aren't like paid CPRS jobs. It's usually that on top of something, some other responsibility or it's like a credential in general. It's not an actual like you get paid to be a peer recovery specialist. What does that even mean? Like a, rec- I, as a role of a recovery coach, I do one-on-ones with people, but that's kind of like an on top of my job doing the medication and the drug screens. It's like the recovery community is so like worn thin with finances that there are not even like paid jobs for CPRSs or sup- stuff like that. And it sounds kind of like that's what you were experiencing uh, just because you were doing this harmony cafe stuff as well. On top of it just feels like that there's has to be a lot going on. Um, I don't know, to get paid for it. Um, it in short, maybe I'm being greedy or whatever, uh, but I don't do it for the money at all. Uh, I do it for my own personal recovery, frankly, and to get back to the community. And I think, that also comes in to play in say like an ethics training uh if i'm being honest ethics was the part of the test that i did the worst on because it's not as inherent as people think it is is like is ethics maybe harder to understand um to people in recovery because we're so i don't know maybe unethical when we're in active addiction Hmm. angela (laughs) Or is that just me? maybe maybe it's completely and entirely me. But, um, you
1: know, so I think, well,
0: I took the long my, way to get to that question. Yeah. But.
1: Well, my experience <laughs> with with ethics, um, it, they weren't hard, but they were scary. It, it was scary to me because one of the pieces of myself that I thought I lost through active addiction was integrity, and I—I I was by the time I uh, got out of jail the last time and went to treatment, I was you know just beat down and thought that that maybe whatever integrity that I might have been taught as a child or had at one point in my life was just gone, and, and I really didn't understand what the hell was wrong with me, um, and so that regaining that and rebuilding uh, that value system again in my life and like having it be the most forward-facing Value that I can give to people um, has been really, really important to me. Uh, but, but in because of that, in early recovery, when you're talking about ethics, and, and I'm going to my first peer support training, and I had like maybe a year sober, and they're talking about ethics, and I'm like, oh god, I, I broke all the rules within uh, <laughs> my active addiction. Like, what, what ethics? It was all about me. Uh, so, so I don't. I don't know that I would say that it's hard. I would say that it's scary.
0: And yeah. Jesse, what are your thoughts?
2: I never really thought about ethics prior to an ethics training. (laughs) It was like, it was, it was one of those things that I'm like, I, I, I don't know like I, like I've been around cars all my life, but I've never learned anything about them. I couldn't tell you what does what it was just kind of there. And then, you know, after, after training for so long and and people started really bringing up this ethics thing, I'm like, yeah, I should probably. And then I'm like, Oh, these are like you said, like, these are just like professional values in a sense. Right. And so then, you know, um, through organizations and through different things like just really learning and understanding the, the, the importance of ethics. I think it is a good thing. And I think that again, when we, when we trust people um, and we err on the side of, of like really valuing people, like they, they, they'll understand ethics and they'll, they'll get where why it's important to have these things collectively. And, you know, and, and we, as we've seen, you know, even within our own recovery community, right? Like there are, there's a spectrum of ethics as to what's okay with, you know, behavior, how people get leadership positions, where you take money from. There's just like a gamut. Right. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, what can you live with? Right. What can you walk away with and, and, and still be you with, you know, and, and I think that's what helps with ethics, you know, just starting that conversation of, what those things mean because we're never going to agree on all
0: of them no i I think that's very fair and and it reminds me of when you said um that some people who were taking you know peer specialist um recovery coach classes because they wanted to be a paid sponsor that doesn't work you know what i'm saying because a sponsor is not always the most ethical person um at least from from different stories. I I love my sponsor personally, but they aren't exactly always the most ethical person and they always think they're right. And a recovery coach should not always think they're right. It's kind of just like helping with resources. You know what I'm saying? So I I think that it might be an important factor or example of how like ethics can work in recovery, um, you know, versus like maybe a professional realm of recovery. Is that... um, I a, well, what what are my final? Yeah, Angela.
1: I, I have a question uh, that popped into my mind listening to you say that, Jesse. Do you have you ever distinguished to uh, to in classes or trainings that you do the difference between a recovery coach and a sponsor?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of the first things we talk about.
1: And what is what? What's your answer for that?
2: Well, we we there's uh, in the in the. Recovery Coach Academy for CCAR, there's an entire chart that distinguishes the lane between coach, sponsor and counselor and talks about like framework, hierarchical understanding, ideology, philosophy, like it goes to the whole thing. And then there was another article that was written about um, distinguishing the roles between a peer and a recovery coach, because there's even distinctions between those two. And if I remember, and if you remind me, I can send you that paper too on those things. Cause again, like I see a coach grassroots working at McShin, you know, doing those things. I see a peer specialist, like you said, like in those mer- more like therapeutic counseling settings. And like, they just had different roles and understandings. But last night I was doing a, a thing over on, uh, in the rooms. And I had one of the coordinators for the peer specialist curriculum on. And, and and it was interesting because his idea of between a coach and a peer was like he was describing a coach to me and then what what I try to train. So so there's a lot of like this nuanced overlap between the two, but there's a very clear line between us being sponsors and not being sponsors. So that's a very important part of the curriculum.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I was like trying to dig down and just like we don't as peers, we're not working steps with you. <laughs> sponsor
0: can do that yeah for sure and 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 i've understand like and you've mentioned it a lot tonight jesse which is very helpful the um the pathways is is like a piece like at least here recovery coaches are supposed to say here are all the different pathways you can pick which either one it's not like pick na it's the only way to recover type type stuff i think that's a really important asset is that i learned Honestly, daily of like a different pathway to recovery. Just as that kind of is one, and I think that's really vital that people have options. It's like I don't know, maybe that's why it's called recovery capital because we get all these options, and that's the perfect version mm-hmm. of capitalism. <laughs> not not to like get economical or anything like <laughs> that, but it's like recovery capital makes sense. Um, it's kind of like a like a free market. I can pick whichever way to to recover. Really. Um, yeah, Angela, please.
1: I, d- I wanted to to come back to the topics of events. Um, I put in the chat box, mm-hmm. and I think Todd's going to post on the feed, uh, some events that we have coming up with End It For Good. So on Thursday of this week, we are hosting a virtual book discussion of Chasing the Scream and Johan Hari is going to guide it for us. That's yeah. Awesome. So excited. So I'm totally going to fan, fan girl out. <laughs> um, and then on, on February 11th and uh, February 25th, we are are having virtual community discussions, and anyone is welcome to join. They're like lunch and learns. And so we come in, and Christina will do her TEDx presentation where we look at the history of the war on drugs and, and how uh, it is causing harm across the spectrum and and then we look at some different ways we look at at portugal we look at at what they've done in switzerland and then and we talk a little bit about oregon so the the links for those events are in the chat box and please anyone who wants to come and learn more sign up they're free
0: definitely anyone anyone listening
1: yeah no and
0: anyone anyone that's listening right now might might listen to this afterward. That's enditforgood.com slash events. enditforgoodcom dot com slash events. That sounds very informative. Like this the the gift that keeps on giving information. Um, I really appreciate that. Um, any any final thoughts before we wrap up here Jesse
2: Final thoughts. Um, It was, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on here and get in the herd. I feel like I've earned some, like another, like a punch on my, my recovery card. Like I've done what the cool kids are doing. So that's awesome. Um, Yeah. Right. Um, (laughs) No, I I think, uh, you know, for those listening or to listen, I I think the biggest thing is, you know, my, my hope and, and, and something that dawned on me like a couple of weeks ago, I said, if you don't think that the recovery community is capable of making an amazing change, think about the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? You cannot go into a building that's not compliant today, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And if you think about what we could do and say like, well, what what would it look like for a workspace or a community to be recovery compliant in that same way, right? And it's possible, you know, so again, enough with like enough with asking permission to be at someone's table there. If there's really 23 million or 25 million people in recovery, we have a large enough table. Right. We just got to get to we just got to narrow our scope a little bit. And, and the way that I suggest doing that is not necessarily by one leader or influencer or organization thinking that they have it. But but I, I think that it should be more of like a buy like the last thing, and I'm sorry for going over, but one of the, the most profound things in twelve-step recovery I experienced was when they were doing modifications to the basic text. And the, the the modification suggestions came all the way down to the group level. We voted on them, then to then to our area, then to our region, then all the way back to rural headquarters, right? So imagine If we had the ways and means to bring that voting of who our leaders are all the way down to the RC level, all the way down to the group level, we vote on, here's the policies that are important, right? Not just top down, here's what we think you should do because we're watching stuff from D.C. for you, but really bring it down to a voting strategy. I think that we could have a lot more cohesion and effort and and be able to make a lot more policy change that way
0: good stuff i think that uh um i think that is great example um for how how to you know do some serious change thank you very much jesse any any other final thoughts angela
1: i just i echo what jesse says and um yeah i i just feel incredibly empowered all the time when I I can look out and, and I see the work that, that they're doing in Wisconsin. I see the work that Garrett and Ryan are doing. Yeah, you know, I look at the work Jenna's doing in Texas and Mike's doing in South Carolina. And it's and it's it's just even though I haven't seen these people in you know over a year, it's the, the community that I feel and the empowerment that I feel because of it is incredible. And it, and it drives me, like even with the daunting task of trying to do something crazy in Red State, Mississippi. It's like uh, the community that these people have provided me just gives me just enough empowerment to feel like, you know what? Hell with it. I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. So I'm grateful. All of that to say, Jesse, thank
2: you. Thank you. Thanks for all your amazing work. And and, uh, my heart goes out to you as well. I've been watching on your Facebook post and know that there's been some loss and some, Uh, you know, yeah, Yeah, I'm so glad that, you know, you're able to make it tonight. And thanks for still doing what you're doing and, and, and knowing that folks are holding space for you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: That's beautiful. I really appreciate having you all on um, very compassionate, intelligent uh, leaders of change. And so I'm I'm very fortunate to help um, give you all a platform to do that, educate our audience and more importantly, ed- educate me because I feel very out of the loop sometimes. Um, so I really appreciate having you on. Um, big shout out to our producer, Todd. Uh, we definitely would would like to have you all on again. Um, Angela, Jesse, y'all have a wonderful night. This has been Get in the Herd. Peace out.
3: Hi, everyone. I'm Honesty Liller. I am the CEO of the McShen Foundation and a woman in long term recovery. Since May 27, 2007, I have not used drugs or alcohol. Woo, woo. Thank you so, so much to the Richmond Times Dispatch and all of our voters for Getting the Herd podcast. Those podcasts are amazing. Not only has it helped thousands upon thousands of people in their recovery, as well as family members, but it has helped me in my personal recovery. I get to listen to them now in my car, through Spotify and iHeartRadio. And it's just really, really important for us to be innovative in the addiction field and the recovery community. So when COVID hit, we had to be innovative. You know, We really had to think of like, what can we do to reach people that cannot go to 12-step meetings? smart recovery, faith-based, whatever, um, that we're shutting down constantly. So we were innovative here at McShin, Let's start podcast. So with Todd, John, Alex, um, and some other staff, you know, we all just kind of jumped in who can do what. And um, with Todd's lead and John's lead, The podcasts have been amazing and we're still doing them today. So I want to thank you for all of your votes and all of your energy and all of your support of our mission of healing families and saving lives. Thanks.